passage that really is not about what David did, but more about what was done for David. So it may be a little different. I want to prepare you for that. It's about what was done for David and not what David did. So before we start, we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to pray before we begin. Father, we love you, and we anticipate that you move today. Because never does your word speak and it return void. Father, this is not a book we open to entertain ourselves. It's not a book that we open to flatter our egos. It's not a book that we open to use as an instrument of hate, critique, or judgment. It's a book that transforms. It's a book that brings life. It's a book that says to the dead souls captured by Satan, live and be free. So Father, we expect when we open this book that you'll do something, that you'll move, that power will be here. For Father, when we look at this pulpit, when we stare at this stage, we see a small high school pastor who looks like a junior higher. But Father, we see more than that because it is your word that will be spoken, your word that will be opened. And Father, I plead with you and I pray that you would speak in a mighty way. I do not want to hear my own words, my thoughts. Father, my words may be heard by these ears, but can they ever change a heart apart from you? No. Father, would you move? Father, would you change? Would you transform us? Prepare us. Ready our hearts for your spirit. And you're my prayer. Amen. So I'm going to start off 2 Samuel chapter 7. So starting in verse 1, this is called by some commentators as the pivotal moment in David's life. His watershed experience, his, the climax of God's activity with David is found right here, and it has nothing really to do with David. So let's start. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read all the way to verse 16. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture following sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the great name of the ones 
of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are filled, you fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for, for you an offspring after you. you shall come, he shall come from your body, and he will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the scene of 2 Samuel chapter 7 starts, and King David has now found peace from all of his enemies. We have gone from the ruddy little warrior to a mighty conquering king. He was the least of these, not even considered by his father, of worthy to present before Samuel to the greatest among his people. He is now God's appointed king. And he is given the title of a man after God's own heart. This unlikely shepherd has become the mighty king. But David's prosperity is never attributed to his strength. In the book of First and Second Samuel, four times, we see that David's success, especially on the battlefield, is connected to this phrase, the Lord was with him. David's endeavors were only successful because God was with him. He is not a self-made man. And at this time, David has completed what Joshua started. The people of Israel, for the first time, have fully occupied the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land promised to Abraham. The land that the people, the slaves in Egypt, wish that they could have saw. The hope that they held on to while they were building bricks and sitting in chains. David has this fulfillment. And in this season of peace, David wishes to build his God that has given him such success, a temple. See, in the ancient Near East, all civilizations would build temples, would take on such large building endeavors and projects only in times of peace and not conflict. It's the same thing we see with David. He has peace, so he wants to build a temple. But that's not the only reason why he wants to build a temple. See, David is appalled by the stark contrast that he observes. He looks at his palace and sees luxury. And yet he peers over at the tent that houses the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence. There is no luxury. There is no beauty. There is no extravagance. And he is appalled by this. How is it that David can have more than his God? 
How is it that a servant can have more than his God? David only became king because of God. So how is this fair? In David's mind, this is unacceptable. So he goes to Nathan the prophet. He tells um, Nathan, he says, this is what I want to do. And Nathan says, go ahead. Do what you wish. Do what you want. But Nathan soon gets a word from the Lord, and the Lord says, stop. Don't do it. I don't want a temple. He reminds David that he has never dwelt in a temple before. He has dwelt in a tent, a movable structure, what was called the tabernacle, what the people moved from Egypt all the way to their journey to Canaan. That is where God has been. Now, if you look in First and Second Samuel, there are two stories that might explain why God is so hesitant to have a fixed, concrete place where his presence can reside. In First Samuel chapter four through chapter six, we see the Israelites about to go into battle. A battle that the Lord does not want them to do. So what they do is they decide, let's take the ark and take it with us to battle. Surely we will then have victory. What they have done is they have taken the ark thinking they can manipulate God by moving it. Thinking that they can take this and say, God must now go with us. They are then defeated. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see the ark of God is disrespected. It's being transported in a way that God does not want. And when it's about to slip and fall and hit the ground, a servant reaches out to touch it and disrespects that symbol, and he is struck down dead. See, the people of God consistently have a problem with these fixed images. They either disrespect them, or they try to manipulate God by them. The people of God don't realize that these symbols must be paired with the idea of God's unlimited divine freedom. God is not localized or fixed. He is not chained or manipulated. He is not pulled to and fro at our bidding. He is not confined by walls or barriers built by man. God is free. Yet, God chooses to symbolize his presence through fixed structures, through concrete ideas, through walls. But these should never be confused as his confinements, but only a place where his people is to worship. See, but I don't think David is being accused of this kind of wrong idea. And I think the proof lies in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings, or sorry, 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. We're given two reasons why David should not build the temple. The first is a practical reason, and the second is a theological reason. In 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3, Solomon gives the practical reason. Now before we get there, it does seem kind of strange that a man entitled, a man after God's own heart, can't build a house, can't build a temple, can't build a structure. But we're given two reasons why that is true. And Solomon gives us the first reason, the practical reason. 
This is what Solomon says. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So Solomon is saying there was an element of warfare. There was still conflict that stopped David from building this temple. Practically speaking, David had peace throughout his kingdom. But apparently there were small pockets of conflict at the borders. And it was not a safe idea to take on such a large building project during a time where conflict could come at a moment. Now the second reason is theological. In 1 Chronicles 22 and 28, David is described as a man of bloodshed. And God says, I do not want your hands to build this temple. Not a man of bloodshed. Now when you first hear that, you might think, how is that even fair? Because the military campaigns of David were commanded by God and sanctioned by God. It would be inconsistent of God if he said, you are guilty of doing what I told you to do. David fought for his people. David fought to fulfill the promise. David fought to bring the people into the land and to conquer it. Just as God told Abraham, David did. But this is not an attack on David's character. What God is saying is, David, this is not your job. David, this is not your lot. David, I want cleaner hands to build my temple. Not that David's hands are dirty, immoral, or sinful. They're just made for a different task. And God has every right to determine when, where, and who will build his temple. This is an example not of the bad character of David, but of divine freedom once again. But our passage goes on, and there's an interesting switch in verse 8. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, God stops defending the idea that David should not build a temple. And then he switches this idea of a house being built. He says that David's name will be great. He says that he will build a house for David. God will build a house for David. David, don't build me a house. I will build you a house. God guarantees to David that he'll have a son. And this son will build the temple of God. David's desire will be fulfilled in his son. His son Solomon will build a temple. But God gives him more than that. God says that the relationship that he has enjoyed with God will be passed on to his son. He says that Solomon will have a relationship with God like a father does to a son. He emphasizes this in two ways. First he says, David, you must know this. I will treat your son, your lineage, your family like this. If they disobey me, I will strike them. If they step out of line, I will correct them. He will do it just like any good father would do. But second, he says this, my steadfast love will not depart from him like it did from Saul. I will never, ever, ever leave your son, leave your throne, leave your family, or leave your kingdom. And this is the most shocking part. We see the conditional nature and the unconditional nature. Conditionally speaking, if you disobey, I will strike him. But the unconditional nature overpowers, overtakes that 
God says, I will never, ever, ever abandon you. And in verse 16, we see the height of this promise. This is where God says that David's house, David's kingdom, David's throne will be established forever. It will be made sure forever. This is the most shocking and the most powerful promise ever given to a king in the history of Judah and in the history of Israel. David is not only given a promise of the immediate future, you're going to have a son. He is given a promise of the future that will last forever. He says, your throne will never be thrown down. Your kingdom will never be abolished. No army, no invader will ever take your house. And this promise of God inevitably becomes a source of hope, not only for David, but for David's people. It becomes a hallmark. It becomes a rock of hope for the people of Israel. This isn't a passage that they simply glance over. No, this passage becomes the lens by which they view their future. If God said forever, surely that means forever. But this hope would turn to disappointment as history unfolds. This promise would come crashing down with an earth-shaking quake. It would be the site of more calamity, more depression than the great failed flight of the Hindenburg. The people's hopes would be made low because this promise would fade as time went on. Just as a beautiful garment loses its color, its vitality, its life with every wash, so too this promise, this hope built on 2 Samuel chapter 7 would wear down, would unravel, and would fade with each disappointing king after David. We look at the next king, Solomon, the great king, the one who built the temple, who took on such a giant endeavor, who built something so luxurious, so grand for God, and yet at the end of his life, he would fall into idolatry. Then the nation would be divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And at this time, the hopes of the Davidic promise of the throne that would last forever begin to spiral downward. The kings of Israel, all bad, all wicked, all ungodly, and that kingdom is destroyed in 721 B.C. But maybe, maybe, the southern kingdom, the kingdom that took the name of David's tribe, Judah, maybe there would be some sense of preservation of the Davidic line in the southern kingdom. And there are glimpses of hope. We have eight kings, eight kings who almost look like David who almost look like a man, men after God's own heart, but they are overshadowed by 12 terrible kings. And the death blow to the promise given to David happens in 606 B.C. when Judah is laid captive and Babylon takes them over. Where is our king? You can hear the generations Asking, based on 2 Samuel 7, 
Where is our king? Where is our promise? And this refrain becomes a loud voice in Psalm, in the Psalms. And none voice is louder than Psalms 89. Psalms 89 begins like many Psalms with praise. Praise of the steadfast love of God. It begins to speak of the great creation of God, how God is the ruler of the entire universe. It speaks of the joy of God's servants that they have when they obey, when they listen to God's voice. And it speaks of the covenant given to David and how God is so faithful to let a nation be ruled by such a great man. It speaks of God's justice, of God's righteousness, and how it will be executed forever. And in verse 29, it specifically remembers the promise of 2 Samuel 7. That David will have a throne forever. But then the tone of this song changes. And the light of this psalm turns to darkness. In verse 38, the mood shifts from rejoicing to remorse. From thankfulness to sorrow. Starting at verse 38 of Psalms 89, it says this, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached his walls. You have laid waste his strongholds in ruin. All who pass by plunder him. He has become a scorn to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned the back of the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. The psalmist begins, and he does not speak of God as friend, but as foe. The picture that is painted for us here is words and actions that would be attributed to an invading army or a conquering nation, and yet they are given to God, casting down their crowns, throwing down their thrones in the dust, laying hold of their strongholds, breaching their walls. God is not a loving father here. God is Israel's vicious enemy. And not only does he hurt Israel, he strengthens Israel's enemies. The God who once brought enemies to the knees before Israel now brings Israel to its knees. The God who once gave them victory now hands them bitter defeat. Now we may casually read this psalm and think, all it is is Israel being punished. That's what it is. Israel's being punished for some sin, some wrong that they did. But that is not the tone of this psalm. That is not the backdrop of this song. Nowhere does the writer mention any wrong of Israel. Nowhere does he mention any fault that gives reason for such a harsh judgment. And what is even harder is that he doesn't mention the fault of Israel. He mentions the promise of God. The tension in the psalm is not Israel's cons- cons- complaint about punishment. It's the apparent contradiction in the promise of God. 
The writer's finger is not pointed at Israel. It's pointed at God. God has not made good on his promise. God has not been faithful. God has not provided a king. God has not done what he said he would do. There is no king on the throne, and the only throne that has a king is a foreign nation, and that king doesn't even love God. So where is our king? Where is our promise? The tension of the psalm heightens in verse 46. The writer begins to ask questions of God and then pleads with God, would you remember what you told us? Would you remember your promise? He says this in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of men. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the nations with which your enemies mocks, mock. O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Where is our king? And this is the hope. This is the tension. This is the anticipation that the gospel's open to. And Luke addresses in his first chapter this question, where is our king that has annoyed, that has plagued Israel for hundreds of years since the rule and the death of David? And he answers this question in verse 32. When speaking about the birth of Jesus, this is what Luke says. He will be great, he being Jesus, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. The throne of David is given to Jesus Christ. And finally, after ages, there is some solid sense of hope, some anticipation of fulfillment. But as the life of Jesus unfolds, we see that this hope fades. Just as it did with the kings of Israel and Judah but not in the same way. Jesus' life is not marked by immorality or idolatry like the king's. But Jesus' ministry comes on the scene with power, with might, with mighty works, with miracles. But this power is used to heal the blind, to feed the hungry, to cast out demons. He never uses it to advance on his enemies. He is not viewed as a conqueror, but a servant. He is not a commander or a leader of warriors. No, his band is dirty fishermen who are called to live a life of humility and loneliness. And when he speaks of victory, he speaks of his death. And when he talks about triumph, he never fails to mention the cross. And when he speaks of the coming kingdom, he always mentions the looming sacrifice. He does not call his followers to arm. He does not tell them to ready themselves for battle, but he pleads with them, would you pray for those who persecute you? He allows himself to be captured, to be beaten, to be humiliated, and to be killed 
And this is his triumph. This is his victory. And now the people of Israel stand at a crossroads. Is this our king? Is this our promised Messiah? But the answer is so obvious to the New Testament writers. This is our king. This is our conqueror. This is our Messiah. In Hebrews 1.5, it says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In Hebrews 1, what the writer is doing is arguing for the supremacy of Christ. And his first argument is this, Jesus is better than the angels. He proves this in this way. He says, two Old Testament passages, two promises. These promises are never given to angels, but only to Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus is better. And the two promises are this. They're a quotation of two Old Testament passages. And the quotation is from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalms chapter 2. The fulfillment of the Davidic promise is found in Jesus Christ. But Psalms chapter 2 kind of gives us a picture of what the kingdom of Messiah would look like. Psalms 2 begins, and there's this scenario where the kings of the earth are beginning to wage war. They talk amongst themselves. They gather up their troops, and they go to fight God. And God looks down at the earth, and it says he laughs, which is my favorite verse. It says he laughs. And then he does this. Not only does he laugh, but he sets up a king. He sets up a king to defeat these kings, these kings of the earth. He picks his king, and then he tells the king, ask of me something. Ask of me something. Ask me a question. And this is what God tells his king to ask for. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. The nations are given to the son and he rules them with an iron fist, punishing any who would disobey. Wow. Now that's a king. But is that a fair description of the ministry of Jesus Christ? Did Jesus smash Israel's enemies into pieces? Did Jesus subject the wills of those who would oppose his father? No. So where's our king? Where's our hope? Where's our kingdom? Are we not left in the same depressing valley that Psalms 89 left us? Where's our hope? Where's our kingdom? Where's the promise of 2 Samuel? Where's the promise of Psalms 2? Where is our conqueror? You see, but this is the mystery and the tension of the kingdom. Christ would first come and usher in the kingdom. And then he would come a second time and bring it to its consummation, its fulfillment, its completion. It's perfection. But there is that tension between the first and the second coming, between ushering in the kingdom and bringing it to its fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and Psalms 2, but he has not brought those promises to completion yet. So in a similar sense, we do sit in that valley. We sit in that valley of Psalms 89, a valley of waiting a valley of hope. 
But in this valley, there is still victory. Though the elevation may seem low, we are still on a mountaintop. The kingdom has come, but not completely. The kingdom is today, yet it is tomorrow. The kingdom is near, yet it is far away. The kingdom is now, but it is to come. The the tension of today, tomorrow, now, not yet, already, but not yet, present, yet future, is written all over the New Testament. Think about it. We are dead to sin, but we still sin. Death has no sting against us, yet we still die. We are saved, but we are called to work work out our salvation. We've been crucified with Christ, yet we are to die daily. Our citizenship is in heaven, yet we we cannot yet claim it as our home. This tension, this longing turns to groaning, and it eternalizes itself. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a description of how this tension, how we deal with living in between these ages, how it affects us. It says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. He's speaking of the body. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan and we long to put on the earth, the heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed. So that is what, or so in this mortal way, be swallowed up by life. For he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee We groan, we long for the completion of the kingdom, for tomorrow to be today, for the later to happen now, for the not yet to be right now, for the future to be the present. And this may seem like some abstract theological idea, but let me tell you, it is not. It is ever-present every single day in your life. Anytime you feel the curse or the consequences of the fall, this is true. When you go to the doctors and receive a diagnosis that is not anticipated, when you succumb to temptation and deal with the depression of letting down your Savior, when you feel financially crippled, unable to provide for your family, when you feel emotionally devastated by the circumstances that surround your lives, when you watch those that you love fall into the dark shadows of death, when you attend more funerals than weddings, when your marriage is a cold shell of what it used to be, when your children run away from the faith that you so diligently imparted to them, when you stare at a monitor in a doctor's office, it tells you the life in that womb is no longer there. When promises are broken, when parents become enemies, when spouses become discontented and unfaithful, when friends become backstabbers, when family bridges are burned, when loneliness creeps in and there's no one there to help you up, when injustice, sickness, death, sin, and Satan seem to have the upper hand, where is your king? Where are the promises of hope, of justice, of health, of life, of victory, of love? Where are the promises of heaven? 
Where is our kingdom? And why must we wait for it? Why must we groan? Why must we long? Why must we sit in that valley of the psalmist and say, where is our king? How do we live in between these promises? How do we live waiting for the kingdom? Psalms 89 ends with a praise. Amidst all the questions, we must remember what God has done for us. Christ has ushered in the kingdom. There is victory. Paul is right in saying we are more than conquerors in Christ. We have hope. We have forgiveness. We have salvation and we have assurance. We have not yet won the fight, but that does not mean we are not winning the fight. Sin may not be fully defeated, but in Christ we are defeating it. We may taste death, but because of Jesus Christ, we will not face the second death. We may experience depression and anxiety, but we have the hope and the joy of our salvation. And the hope of looking toward a day when every tear will be wiped from every eye. But see, I think there's something else that we miss in this. Something that we overlook. The waiting, the groaning, the longing should not lead us to depression, but should motivate us. The question of where is our king does not leave us in the valley. It encourages us. It motivates us to charge the mountain. This is expressed in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Do not overlook this fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, and the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The most shocking part happens in verse 3. It says that we hasten the coming of the day of God. Other translations say we speed His coming. Now, I don't believe this is an attack on God's sovereignty. I don't believe Peter is saying that somehow we hurry the calendar of God or that we go in heaven and strong harm Him into moving His calendar. I don't think that's going on here. I think with sovereignty completely intact in one hand, revered completely, Peter does not deny man's responsibility. Jesus uses a similar formula in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. He says, This gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. Why does the Lord wait? Why does he tarry? Why is the promise not yet fulfilled? Why has the kingdom not yet come? Because there's a job to be done. The gospel must go to the nations. Now I know this sounds strange, to think that we can speed the Lord's return. 
And I know it's tough to fit into our theological systems, but we must admit this. It's still a verse in the Bible. And it does actually not seem that strange. When our Savior, in teaching His disciples to pray, He would tell them, make sure you give this request. Thy kingdom come. And the last verse in the New Testament would be this. Come, Lord Jesus. So is it truly that strange? When we are surrounded by the questions of where is our King when we look around waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled, when we are overwhelming by the longings of this life to have our heavenly blessings, I believe we must say to ourselves and to those around us with full confidence and conviction, bring your king. Hasten the day. Speed his coming. When you feel the weight of injustice around you, when you're burdened by sickness and death, when it seems you cannot escape sin and Satan's traps continue to entangle you, when you feel the effects of the fall, bring your king, bring the gospel to the nations. When you are crippled by the grief of the thousands aborted in this nation, bring your king, bring the gospel. When you can't seem to get out of bed because you're crushed by playing the underdog every day, Bring your king. Bring the gospel. When you can't stand to have another MRI and watch your doctor's face grimace as he delivers the bad news, bring your king. Bring the gospel. When you are sick of adding pills to your weekly rotation, when you can't stand to give in to another temptation, when you are sick of seeing addiction claiming the lives of parents and children, when you are sick of seeing students sell out to lust, to status, and to popularity, bring your king, bring the gospel. My prayer is this. May your dissatisfaction with this world, motivate you to bring the kingdom. May we be like David and do something, dare to do something for God and run until he tells us to stop. Father, we love you and we thank you for the promises that you give us, that hope is just over the horizon. But Lord, it is hard while we wait. It is hard while the darkness seems so thick. It is hard when it seems that Satan and sin and our enemies have the upper hand. It is hard to play the underdog. But Father, we know that the greatest underdog to be born not in a palace but a manger overcame this world with such power, with such strength that didn't require money or muscle but humility and godliness. Father, would our dissatisfaction not cause us to be critical, not cause us to be judgmental, not cause us to disable the nations, but to bring our king and give them the gospel. Father, free us from our cynicism. Free us from a critical heart. The only thing that hastens your day, that speeds your coming is the gospel. May we bring it to the nations. You need my prayer. Amen.